Welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Just a little bit different this morning if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do. If you'll open them up to Exodus 20, please, that's where we'll be. Um, I just wanted to give you guys, we've been doing this for a few weeks, I wanted to give you one final warning. I don't see any here, but today's sermon does deal with some very adult topics, and what I wanted to do is make sure that everybody was aware of that. We have opened up our children's church for students up to sixth grade today, and I wanted to give you guys some time to prepare yourself for that as well, because I understand the awkwardness of this subject. We've been in a series called Written in Stone, and we've been going through the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments deal with how God designed us, how God wanted us to live in this world. And when sin entered the world, we broke those rules, and we chased things that God is unhappy with. And and the Ten Commandments are about bringing us back to those. And, And in this, God has provided an opportunity for us to talk about an uncomfortable subject the subject of human sexuality. And it's not something that I really want to talk about, but it's something I've been so convicted of that in our society, in the way that our society is going, that that we need to discuss this and we need to be open about this in our faith and the way that God designed this and what God's uh, standards for us are because I believe that this is the most pervasive sin that we're dealing with today in our country. So if you've got your Bibles, here's the commandment. Exodus 20, verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we come to you this morning. Lord, we do long and thirst for for your world, for your plan for this world, and God, for you. God, this morning as as we open your Bible, God, I pray that we approach this, this subject in holiness, God, that you will speak through us. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be here, God, that it will work in us as as the convictor of the one who shows us how you want us to live as it changes and grows us. God, I also pray for the Holy Spirit to be on display as a comforter as we deal with a topic that may bring shame or embarrassment. Lord, we pray that in this message that you are glorified. God, I pray it's your words and not mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there you have it. There's the topic. And this morning, we're going to address this topic both biblically and boldly. I'm going to say that again. Biblically and boldly. You may need to prepare for that because this is a topic that we tend to kind of skimp over because it is, it is very awkward and, and we don't really want to discuss it together. And so I wanted to provide one last out for you. If, if you feel like you are just a little bit awkward during this and you don't like the way this is being addressed, just feel free to go ahead and grab, gather your stuff up um, very, very quietly so as not to disturb anybody. Uh, Walk up here to the stage and I will switch places with you in a heartbeat because if you think it's awkward out there, you ought to be up here trying to talk about this. It's pretty awkward to talk about. But we're going to go ahead and dive into this biblically and boldly how God has this topic, the topic of sex, laid out in our Bibles. When I was in college, I had a college professor and he was discussing relationships between men and women in the Victorian era and and how men and women were so like foreign to each other. And and this is the way he described sex during this time. He said, during the Victorian era, we absolutely did not have sex. And if we did, we did it with all the lights off, all of our clothes on, and we absolutely did not enjoy it. 
And, and that was a bit comical to everybody in that college class because everybody and everybody in this room knows that that's not true. That's, that's not how this actually happens. But yet as Christians, we've chosen to begin to address this topic because of the awkwardness of it in that way. We've chosen to pretend that this is not something that affects us. We've chosen to pretend that this is not something within our lives. And the reason we're addressing this in a different way is because if you've noticed the world around us, that's not working anymore. That, that concept of just pretending that this doesn't happen, that concept of pretending that we are not affected by sexual sin, it is not working in our society where sexuality is becoming so commonplace you can't escape it anywhere. Here's your homework for today. If you've never thought about this, I'm going to ask you to go home and do it, go about your normal routine. Turn on the TV, get on social media, whatever you do. And I want you to count the seconds, not the minutes, the seconds until you see something highly sexualized being poured into your life and into your home. I've got an over and under on that of 45 seconds is what I think. Before something is poured into your home, into your life, into your children's life of a highly sexual nature, it's not enough for us to pretend that this is not happening in the world around us. And so we're going to address this commandment, how it's affecting us, our struggle, and our temptation. If you've got your bulletin, every week we have an outline in there. It's usually half a page and about three to five take-home truths, main points. If you find that in there today, that outline is about four times the length that it normally is. And there's a couple of purposes in that. If you'd like to fill that out, you can. If you're a note taker, that's okay as well. And if you don't want to, that's all right as well. But the purposes in your extended outline is number one is we are providing this as a resource to parents who may need to broach this subject with their children, where they have references to the scripture and how God's word lays out the topic of sex and sexuality. Secondly, because this is a sensitive topic, I wanted to make sure that just like every message, I wanted to make sure that this message was biblically proofed and I'm inviting both accountability and I'm encouraging accountability by you. If you want to study more on this subject and see if I'm off my rocker somewhere, I've given you the scripture I've pulled in for this. Please go home and study and find me or hold me accountable to what I say here. So that outline is there for you. If you don't like to take notes, but you feel like you would like to have that outline completed for you. There is a completed outline in our message center that has all of the blanks filled in. So here we go, talking about this topic of adultery, human sexuality. Point number one, adultery is defined as any sexual activity, whether alone, with another individual, or within your mind, outside the context of marriage. I'm going to say that again. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is defined as any sexual activity, whether alone, with another individual, or within your mind, outside the context of marriage. Before we go any farther, I'm just going to stop right there. Because without doubt, doubt in here, there's somebody that you're just ready for this to be over. You want to go home because you don't want to hear this. You know that this has been something that you failed at in your life and you're probably hearing some kind of a voice. And I just want to be clear. If you're hearing a voice today that tells you that you're worthless, that you're broken, that God's done with you, that you've messed up too far, listen to me carefully. That is not, that is not God's voice in your life. If you're carrying shame for past mistakes and if you've dealt with that with Jesus Christ, there's no reason to carry that shame anymore. That is not the voice of God in your life. However, if you're hearing a voice today that's saying you're struggling with this sin in your life and it is gently pushing you towards repentance, it is gently pushing you towards seeking accountability, that voice is very probably God speaking. So as we define adultery, 
as a sexual activity, whether alone with another individual or within your mind outside the context of marriage, you may be asking yourself, Brian, that's not what I thought adultery meant. Like we've heard this taught on before and what adultery is usually taught is that, that adultery is being involved in some kind of an affair. I'm married to one person and I'm having a relationship with another person or I'm having a relationship with a person who is not my spouse that is somebody else's spouse. And that's how we define adultery. And that's very technically correct. That's very technically what this word means. But I'm going to ask the same thing that I asked last week. Last week we talked about the topic of murder. And I ask you, does your definition of murder match God's definition of murder? And we went into the scripture where Jesus Christ redefined murder. And this week I'm going to ask of me and you, does our definition of adultery, does it meet God's definition of adultery? In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus addresses this. Here he says, Ye have heard it said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's the command. Jesus pulls it up. And then our favorite word in scripture, what is it? It's but. That means Jesus is fixing to change something. He's about to change our perspective. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so once again, we see the same thing we see in the commandments again and again and again, is that we tend to define action or to, uh, define words by the actions that go with them. God defines uh, what's in our heart, defines this term by what's in our heart. And so what he asks and what he pushes out to others is it doesn't matter if you're acting on it or are you dealing with improper thoughts? Are you dealing with your eyes going in improper places? And in that moment, Jesus said, well, you are guilty of breaking this commandment. You are guilty of adultery. And for that reason, we can say that any of these other activities mentioned would be related to first having lust in our heart. They all fit under that. Point number two, this one's going to be very awkward, but we're going to go ahead and say it. We're going to look for biblically or God's biblical heart for sex and how he deals with it and how he designed it. Point number two, sex is a good thing. It is quiet in here today. I love y'all, and I understand how awkward this is. I will switch anytime. It is quiet. Point number two, sex is a good thing. And some of you have been visiting here for just a few weeks, or you're here for the first time, and you're going, what kind of church is this? Oh my goodness, what's happening to us? Some of you wives have been praying for your husbands. God, grasp his attention with one of the messages of that church, and you're thinking, this is not what I meant, God. Listen to me. Sex is a good thing, and if you will stick with me for just a couple minutes, I'm going to bring this back to a more familiar and a more comfortable place. I promise, I promise, I promise. But when we address God's design for the world and we address sin, we believe that we address not only what God doesn't want us to do, but his superior and opposite plan that he put within this earth. And so as we address this topic of sexuality, as we address adultery, we want to address God's original plan and how it should be. Under that sub point A, God designed sex. You may have never thought about that before because we've been told all of our lives, it's a dirty thing. Don't, don't admit this. Don't, don't tell anybody that this is part of your life. Don't admit that you are a sexual being. But point A, God designed sex. Once again, everything I'm saying is backed up by scripture on your outline. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, him. We talked about that last week. Male and female 
created he them. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. When God created Adam, he looked at Adam and he said, he's not complete. He nudged somebody else. And God took from Adam a rib and he created Eve and he created her different. And yet he created her as the same kind of being. God established gender. God established sexuality in the way that he made men and women. If you think about, we're not going to get too deep into this, but the differences in between the bodies of a man and a woman, they are all related to one of two things, sexuality or same topic, reproduction. God did not do that on accident. God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden, leave them there without any clothes and come back three days later and go, what are you doing? I I don't know what you're, I didn't mean for y'all to do that. Oh, I overlooked that. Can't believe y'all figured that out. God designed that and we know that he designed that because he gave Adam and Eve instructions in the garden. He said, go forth, be fruitful and multiply, have children. And we know that children are a side effect of sexual behavior. So God designed it this way and he did it on purpose because we believe that God is good. We believe that what God designed is good. And therefore we believe his design for sex is good. Subpoint B there. God designed sexual desire in all humans. God designed sexual desire in all humans. When I was in college, one of my friends was getting married. And of course, it was the week before the wedding and, and there was all kinds of, um, all kinds of festivities and, and getting ready. Um, um, the, what do you call it when you have the Rehearsal dinner. That's what I was trying, kept trying to say, reception. He's having the rehearsal dinner. And, and after the rehearsal dinner, the bride-to-be was pulled aside by her grandmother who had raised her. And, and, th- and this is the conversation. She said, honey, I need, to, I need to talk to you for a second. Would you come here and sit down? And, and she sat down and she said, sweetie, tomorrow, tomorrow things are going to change. Tomorrow you're going to be married. You'll be a wife. And you'll have a husband. And, and tomorrow night... Your husband's going to try to do something with you and you're not going to understand. You're not going to know what, what he's trying to do and I just want you to know it's okay. That's what husbands are supposed to do. Just, that's, that's fine. Just, just, you'll get used to it eventually. But honey, I just wanted to prepare you for that. Now, first off, before I go any farther, let me say thank God for godly parents and grandparents who continue to pour into their children even after they're adults. But the reason I know that story, and I want to remind you, I was a different person then than I am now, as is this couple I was talking about, is that story was shared with a friend group of people as a joke. And the reason for that is everybody except for that grandmother knew that this couple had been living together for two to three years in everything that entails, and they had been sexually active together since high school six or seven years earlier. And it was common knowledge to everybody but the grandmother. And you can tell in the way that she addressed it, she had never considered that her daughter might be made, or her granddaughter might be made with these desires, or that she might struggle with sexual sin. But every human struggles with this. Every human struggles with those particular desires. I've got a graph coming up here. I said graph instead of picture because some of you guys would freak out if I had to set a picture. I've got a a graph coming up here in the way that God designed your brain. Within your brain, everything that you feel is a chemical or a hormone. Everything that you feel is something that God put in there and your brain secretes this liquid and it makes you feel. That's what gives you emotions. And this particular hormone that we're talking about is called dopamine. This is called the the pleasure chemical. When you feel good about something, it's because your brain is producing dopamine. That's what makes you feel good. When you feel really, really low, it means that you don't have a lot of dopamine in your brain. 
And so you see the baseline up there in blue, that's where a human normally is. The yellow right under that, the yellow right under that is food. That's why when you have a bad day and you're feeling low, what do you want to do? I want to go home and I want to eat something. I want to eat ice cream. I don't care about my diet. I want something good. That is your body giving you a craving because it knows that you need this chemical to bring your mood back up. If you look at the green one, that's sex. And everything below that, those three in purple, those are synthetic drugs that can be given to humans. So let me put it this way, and I'm gonna move on very quickly, is the most pleasurable thing that God designed naturally in this earth is sex. It was designed that way, and it was on purpose, the highest physical pleasure that God gave to us as a gift. And it's a gift that he expects and knows that humans will take part in. It's quiet in here again. Lord, help me. Pray for me up here, guys. But that's what he said. Listen to this. In your Bible, there is an entire book called the Song of Solomon. It is an entire book dedicated to romantic love between a husband and a wife. And it says things you would not believe in there. In Hebrew culture, young boys could not read this until they were 30 years old because it was considered so scandalous and so inappropriate. And this is part of your Bible. It talks about physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. And this is part... This is part of that lamp unto your feet and that light unto your path. This is part of the words that we are to hide in our hearts that we might not sin against God. God is not embarrassed by this topic. God designed this for a purpose. He knows it's gonna be used. He expects it to be used. And for that reason, sex is a good thing. Point number three. Some of you will like this one a little bit better. Sex is a bad thing. Wait, you just said, I know I just said, stick with me. We're going to bring this back together here in just a second. But sex is a bad thing. I've given you a ton of references there where the scriptures talks about sex being a bad thing, where it talks about it being destructive. But the one I want to break down is 1 Corinthians 6, 8. Listen to this. It says, flee fornication. Most translations translate that as sexual immorality. That's what we're going to use today. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man doeth is within the body, but he that committeth fornication, sexual immorality, sinneth against his own body. So let's break this down. What is God saying here about sex in this context? First word he uses there is flee. What does flee mean? It means to run away, to get away from something. Not necessarily just to run, but to run away from something dangerous. And I was trying to think this week, like, like what are some things that, that we would run away from? Some kind of a danger that we need to escape. And I was like, uh, invading soldiers if you know if we were at war with another country and they invaded we would run away um angry bears would run away from angry bears um monsters on tv king kong godzilla people are always fleeing from those mother-in-laws you know things that are dangerous things that are dangerous are what that's the first time i've pulled a mother-in-law joke that my mother-in-law was not in the building i win that one things that are dangerous are what we are running away from so the scripture puts out here in this that, that there's some kind of a danger something to be scared of something to run away from something to get away from for that purpose and then it goes on to say the word that we talked about a second ago fornication or sometimes translated sexual immorality I'm just going to throw this out here and let it marinate, and then we're going to move on. That word in the original Greek is porneia. The word that we are told to, floor, to flee from in the original Greek is porneia. And then the scripture goes on to talk about how this is a sin against your own body. Uh, all other sins don't fall under this, but sexual immorality falls as a sin where you sin against your own body. That doesn't make it a worse sin. That doesn't make it a better sin. But what the scripture here tells us is that there's something within this. It has the power to affect your body in a negative way. 
And so here's what the scripture says. It says, danger, run away. There's a power here that you don't understand. It is a power to destroy you, a power to hurt you, a power to cause damage. Get away while you can. The scripture is very clear about the power of sex. And we know the power of this. Because what's the most heinous crime that you can think of? I bet you think of a sex crime. We view that as, as worse than murder. Because we know there's something about that that is abnatural. Something about that is forcing something to participate in more than just a regular assault. And since I brought the topic up, let me just say that. This may be the only thing somebody in here needs to hear today. If that's you, if you're a victim of that, I just want you to know that, that you are so loved. And I hurt with you, but more importantly, God hurts with you as well. Something was taken from you that's not your fault, and, and you need to hear this today. God knows that. And he wants you to turn to him for healing. But, but we as people, we know, we know the power of this because of how we address it in our society. We know the power of it as a sales technique. We know the power of it as a crime. We know the power of it as influencing people to do things. And for that reason, sex is a bad thing. Point number four, if you still got your outline, the difference between sex being a good thing and sex being a bad thing is that if, if we use it, I'm sorry, let me try that again. The difference between sex being a good thing and sex being a bad thing is if we use it as it was designed to be used. One of my favorite things about Jesus is that when he was preaching and teaching, he could, he could read the hearts and the minds of people around him. And I, I've been a little hesitant to admit this to y'all, but part of my gift of ministry is I can, I can read your hearts and your minds. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it. What's in your heart and what's in your mind right now is, why does Brian have a church can in this gas, or have a gas can in this church building? Is that what you were thinking? I thought so. Uh, this is gasoline, and your okayness with me having a can of gasoline in this church depends on how I'm going to use it. Like, if you're okay with me having this here, depends on what I'm about to do with it. If I told you guys today I am announcing a new thing, Operation Christmas Child has asked for gas cans full of gasoline so they can transport gasoline to places where gasoline is not plentiful, and they're going to pour this in vehicles and use it to mobilize those Christmas child boxes to kids that otherwise would not get them and hear the gospel. You'd be okay with this. You'd be like, okay, so we're gathering gas cans and gas every week to help Operation Christmas Child. Now, let me stop there. Be very clear. I made that up. Please don't, try to, please don't try to donate gasoline to Operation Christmas Child next week. But under that context, you're like, good, we'll bring more gasoline in here. It's stored safely. It has a purpose. It's being used for what it was designed to. It has a power to do good things. But your opinion of me holding this can of gasoline changes if what I'm going to use it for changes. Well, me and Jessica have had a rough week. We're tired and felt like we needed to blow off some steam. So we're going to go out to eat after church today, and then we're going to come to your house and pour this all over your stove and on your couch and on your drapes and just see what happens. Maybe that'll make us feel a little bit better. Suddenly, your opinion of me holding this gas can changes. You, you, don't, you don't see it the same way. See, what you know about gasoline is that it holds power within it, and if used the way that it should be used, and if taking care of the way that the warning labels say it has the power to be amazingly good, but if I use it in a way that it's not meant to be used, it has the power to be amazingly destructive. That's sex. If used within the guidelines and looking at the warning labels that God gave us in Scripture, 
If used that way, it has the power to do amazingly great things. But if used in a way that it wasn't designed, it becomes very, very, very destructive. So we want to look at God's parameters for sex. God's warning labels on sex in the Bible and how it is to be used, how he designed it to be used, and how he did not design it to be used. So point A under number four here is it is to, uh, sex is to be used between a man and a woman. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is maybe a topic for another marriage, but I've given you scriptural references written by the hand of God himself telling you about this. Is designed for a man and a woman. And I also want to note that all those scripture references, I did this on purpose, I choose or chose all of those from the New Testament because some people will tell you that that was only in the Old Testament. It is not. But when God sees us using sex in a homosexual way, he is displeased with it and listen very carefully, it becomes destructive. We're in a month that tells us to celebrate this misuse of God's gift to us. And we simply can't do it, not because we're hateful bigots, but because we cannot participate in watching people that God love destroy their lives using a gift he gave us for good things in a way that he said would be destructive. Point B, sex is to be used within a biblical marriage. And I've got uh, some verses there that show that out as well. So a biblical marriage is defined as a man and woman united in a covenant before God for life. And within this context, sex is permissible. Hebrews 13, 4 tells us that the marriage bed is pure. It is clean. It is undefiled. It is okay. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about this being a regular occurrence between a husband and a wife. He says flat out, do not withhold unless you're going to take some time to both agree. Let's not do that so we can pray and focus on God. And then he literally says, get right back to it. And so in this biblical marriage, this is the way that God designed it, and this is the context in which it can be used as a good thing. It's not only commanded, and uh, it's not only allowed, but it is commanded and encouraged by the Bible. And the reason for this is God designed sex to bond a husband and a wife together. Earlier, I showed you a graph talking about, about dopamine. And dopamine is the, uh, what they call the pleasure hormone. We're going to talk about another one now. It's oxytocin. We call this the cuddle hormone. That's why when you were in junior high and for the first time you had a romantic interest and that first time you slipped your hand over there and you held their hand, you're like, I could just hold hands with this person forever. It's oxytocin within you. And oxytocin is meant to bond us to another person. It's about 10 times more prevalent in women than it is men. And that's why all of our huggers at church are ladies. They're looking for their oxytocin hit. They need a hug. They want a bond. They want to love. They, they need that. That's what oxytocin is. And the highest amount of oxytocin in the human body is in a female right after childbirth. Everything about a baby causes those oxytocin amounts to just rise so that, that mother can bond with her children and love them and see them in a way that she would never see any other child. But the second highest amount of oxytocin of this bonding chemical within our brains is when a husband and a wife come together for intimacy. That's when you see it the most. And you'll hear people say, like, they'll be studying science and like, well, the more that we learn about science, the more it proves that we don't have a need for a being who gives us governing rules and that the Bible's doctrines are way behind. That's not true. In the past 40 to 50 years, as we find this, we find the exact opposite is that with the more science that we learn, we see that the Bible was right. For thousands of years, we've taken it on faith that the Bible was right, that the Bible knew what it was talking about. But suddenly we understand the human brain a little bit more. It's like, wow, I grasp that. If, if sex is meant to bond a husband and wife, 
in a bond that you can't see, in a bond that can't be broken, easily anyway, doesn't that lend a little credence to what the Bible says? Husband and wife become what? One flesh. Their bodies are connected to each other in a way that we can't see or explain. And for thousands of years, we've taken that one flesh doctrine just on faith. But today, science proves it. Science proves what God has said. So it's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like duct tape. This is the good duct tape, too. I stole this from a VBS worker. It's the Gorilla duct tape. This stuff is sticky stuff. And, and it, it's good if you use it in the right purposes, right? If you, if you stick things together that need to be stuck together, like my mouth, that would be a good thing. Some of you are wishing for that right now. But let's say I've got this box, and it's got all these flappy things, and I'm going to send something back to Amazon because my wife ordered it, and now we're sending it back, as we do twice a week. And so as, as long as I use this in an appropriate way to bond two things that need to be bonded together, that's a good thing, Right? That, that's what it's designed to do. And in that way, this adhesive, this bonding material is really good. But what if I use this, this bonding material that has an amazingly great purpose? What if I bond it to something it shouldn't bond to? What if I use it in a way that, God, that it wasn't intended to be used? Get that on there real good. You guys know how I tell you every Sunday after service, I love you. I'm about to prove it to you. <laughs> but we put this in this and everybody here understands that that's bonded the wrong way. Why? Because at some point, I used this to bond something that wasn't meant to be permanent. And when it comes off, it's gonna be a bad thing. And that's how sex outside of marriage is, is it bonds us in the wrong way. That's why we had some kind of a, an encounter in high school with somebody we haven't seen in years, but you still think about them and you still feel connected to them because you bonded yourself to them. That, that's why we have people in our lives that we know and we love. And they're in a relationship for four or five, six months or two or three years. And everybody around them knows that relationship shouldn't have lasted three weeks but because they got sex involved outside of marriage, because they bonded themselves when they shouldn't have bonded, they don't know how to escape the relationship. And this is what the Bible says, and this is the science. Everybody who uh, sins sexual immorality sins against their own body. The Bible tells us danger, run away, flee, because you're doing something to your body that you don't understand. There's a power that you don't understand, and at some point, ah, 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 not only did I just rip my leg hairs out for y'all, I'm gonna have to walk around looking like I shaved my legs for the rest of the summer. At some point, it's gonna hurt when something that was bonded together shouldn't have been bonded together. And the Bible puts these warning labels on sex for that reason. Two things happened when I yanked this off. Number one, it's covered in my hair. If you would like this as a souvenir from our sermon, you can have it. But the other thing is, is the more I... The more I stick this, the less sticky it becomes, and the less effective it is. This is now a useless, a useless piece of duct tape. It does nothing. The average amount of sexual partners before marriage in America is eight people. Our society tells us it's a good thing and it should be celebrated. But what we're doing is we're bonding ourselves again and again and again, and we're ripping the tape off again and again and again until this thing that God 
This thing that God designed to be a good thing to bond us to our husband or to bond us to our wife is becoming less sticky. And this thing that was supposed to be amazing within our marriage to bring us back to our husband and a wife after every fight becomes less effective. The Bible says run away from it. It will destroy you. And this powerful tool that God put to bond a husband and a wife together becomes ineffective. And it weakens the links and the bond of marriage. And when you weaken something, it's likely to fail. So what we see is what the Bible tells us in the warning is true. It begins to steal the gift that God gave to us, our spouse. It begins to steal that. Now again, I I just want to remind you guys because this is a sensitive subject. There's two voices speaking in this room today and one of them's telling you you're broke and you've messed up and you can't fix it and there should be shame. That's not the voice of God. But the voice that tells you that this is something that you're struggling with and you need accountability and repentance, that most likely is. Point number C, if you're still with me on the outline, it is to be used as a type of service and love to our spouse. I'm gonna go through this one incredibly quickly. In 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering a question. He's had this discussion with the Corinthians. We're gonna talk about Corinth here in a minute. It's a horrible place when it comes to sexual sin. And he's been talking to them and he's been teaching them and trying to teach them how to escape this. And so apparently they wrote him a note that said, okay, we get it now. Nobody touches anybody. That, that, that we just don't do it ever. It's such a bad thing. It's so powerful. It would be better if we were just away from it forever. And Paul writes back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he goes, um, no, <laughs> that's not what I said. I didn't say don't touch anybody. He said every husband is to have his wife and every wife is to have her husband. And the reason he says that is because those desires that we talked about don't go away just because you become a Christian. And he says, if you and your spouse are not meeting each each other's needs, it opens one or both of you up for sexual temptation. He said, for this reason, make sure that you're using this the way that God designed to help you avoid sexual temptation, using it within marriage the way that it should be. Point D, sex is not to be used in the form of mental sexual fantasy. And this is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. Jesus talks to a group of people who who were as holy as you could be action-wise, and he says to them, he said, hey, listen, uh, I see your actions, and your actions are good, but you've got some dirtiness in that heart that I can see as well. You've got some problems in your heart that you might not actually allow this action to happen, but you're thinking about it, and you're letting your mind go there. Men, you're looking at women, and you're wondering what's under that shirt. And you're allowing your mind to begin to imagine that. Ladies, you're looking at men and you're wondering, I I wonder what it would be like to to be around that person. And Jesus says, "That's, that's the same thing. You're opening yourself up to that same kind of destruction just as if you were doing the actual action. And we ask ourselves, how does this apply today? So on our outline, our last couple of points, beware of the danger point one or I in entertainment. I was reading a uh, review a while back on one of my favorite TV shows. If you've been around me for more than 10 minutes, I probably told you about The Chosen. Like, we talk about The Chosen all the time. And I was reading through reviews, and there's a lot of encouraging views about how this this, um, TV show about the life of Jesus and the disciples was changing people's lives. And I read this one comment from an individual, and he said, "Um, I'm not going to watch this anymore. I watched three episodes, and there wasn't any nudity in it. I don't have time to waste my time on this. 
And the reason I tell you that is because it has become so prevalent in our society that our entertainment is sexualized, that people are beginning to expect it. And it's odd when it's not in there. And so beware of the danger in our entertainment because there's temptation there. There's temptation to allow our minds to wander in the wrong place. And the Bible says, run, there is danger here. Be careful. What about our social media? We, we know so many people, we see so many things in social media, and we see people that are seeking attention, posting things that, that we probably wouldn't post or thinking that they shouldn't post. And yet, somehow we find ourselves week after week just kind of letting it happen on our social media feed. Those pictures popping up and we say, oh, it's a, it's a harmless temptation. I, I don't really think about that that much. I just kind of notice it and then I don't. The Bible says, run, there's danger on your social media feed. There's, there's danger in what you're allowing your eyes to see and what you're allowing into your brain. There's danger in entertainment in the places that we go. And just to be gentle, I prayed about this and I decided not to go any farther with this topic, but the places we go on the internet as well. Because we know that we go places that we're tempted. We might convince ourselves, I'm going out with friends and I just want to spend some time with friends, but, but we know they're going to that one place and there's going to be all of this, all of this temptation there. The Bible tells us, run there's danger, destruction is found there. And don't bond yourself to those things, not even mentally. Point number II or two or whatever it is, is beware of the danger in fashion. Once again, I want to remind you, I prayed about this very deeply. I'm going to go over it very quickly. And some of our ladies here may get mad at me because what you're going to tell me is, Brian, you need to teach those men to watch their eyes. It's not my fault if they want to look at me. I should be able to dress how I want to dress. I shouldn't be responsible for the behaviors and the sins of other people. Brian, teach other people how to control their sin. I just did. I just did. But listen to what the Bible addresses in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. God didn't put this in here because he doesn't want your friends to think you look good in your new clothes. A few years ago, some Canadian researchers, they, they did a, uh, an experiment and they wanted to know what makes men's minds tick? H how do they work? And they wanted to know this specifically when it comes to, to lustful eyes. Why are men visual? And so what they did is they showed men pictures of women that they had never met and would never see that were scantily clad and things like bikinis and low-cut shirts and, and short shorts. And then they scanned their brain and said, what part of their brain is working at this moment when that man is focused on that? What they found is the part of the man's brain that began to light up when looking at a woman with very little clothes on is the same part of his brain that lit up when he looked at a hammer or a wrench. And what they found in this is that when men engage in this outside of the confines of marriage, when they let their minds wander, they don't see people. They see tools for helping their gratification. Ladies, I'm not telling you this because I'm getting on to you or I have anybody in mind. I just want us to know as a church and as a society that God is trying to protect us from something. Because God sees all people as more than the sum of their body parts. But this broken world around us will not. No matter what you teach, 
no matter what you say, no matter how much you degrade it, this broken world will not see that. And so you have a choice to dress in a way that says, my value is my flesh, and that's how I choose to attract people. Or you have a, the ability, the choice to dress in a way that says, I know my value is from God, and I'm more than my body, and I'm more than my weight, and I'm more than the sum of my body parts. I am a personality. I have achievements. God made me special. I have a heart that others don't have. And how others see you is found in that. And in all of these things that we've talked about, everything that we've talked about, society wants to drag us down. They want to pull us down. They want, they want this to become commonplace in here. Go out in the world and say the things that I just said and see what people say to you. Go out in the world and say sexuality is, is meant between a man and a woman and see how quickly people knock you down. They don't care if you're a Christian, but they want to drag you into their sin. And, and all of these things in our society is pulling us down. And I, I can't believe that Christians are not being pulled down. In fact, I know statistically we are. But I want to tell you that we're not the first. The book of 1 Corinthians that we've been talking about, this has been written to the church of Corinth. And what you need to know about Corinth is it was the original sin city. There was no Las Vegas. Corinth was Las Vegas on steroids. They had a temple there with a thousand prostitutes and it was commonplace to go visit that place. Their, their after dinner entertainment, let's just say, was not wholesome. As a matter of fact, this place was so known for the sexual sin that throughout the Roman Empire, to call somebody a Corinthian was the same thing as to refer to them as a prostitute. That's how dirty Corinth was, and the church at Corinth was getting dragged down. And Paul is addressing them with this. You've got to keep yourself away from the world. You've got to be separate. You've got to be different. You've got to handle this differently. This is how Christians handle it. And I want to just kind of tell you what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. He, he gives off this list, the one that he does so often, where he gives off this list of sins, and he'll say the sexual immorality, uh, immorality the sexually immoral and the homosexual and the thieves and the slanders. And he'll go through this list and then he ends it with, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he throws out a bomb there to people who are failing at sexual immorality. He says, listen, this is, this is not a hallmark of people that know God. But in verse 11, he says this. After making that list of people, he says, but such were some of you. I love the tense of that. Paul is addressing this church full of people that have failed, that the society has dragged them around. They have sexual sin within their church. And Paul says, listen, those things are not of Christians. Those things are not of people who follow God. And he says this to people who are failing. He says, that was who you were. That was your identity. But, there, but there's, something, there's something different about you now. You're not that kind of a person anymore, even though you may have failed. If you're a Christian, Paul goes on and defines, he says, you have been washed, you have been justified, and you have been sanctified. That means you have been cleaned, you are found not guilty, and you have been changed. And he addresses this to people that are sucked into their society and the sexualization of it. He says, this is not who you are. You can stand before Jesus Christ clean. And if you're struggling with this today, if you feel the shame, I just want to repeat those words to you. This is, this is not who you are. You've made some mistakes and maybe there's something you need to get right with God, but it's not who you are. The sin has no power over you. Live if you want to make your way up here. And God has provided us the tools to break free. Now, what might keep us from breaking free from that is shame. 
What shame tells us is I can never admit this to anybody because nobody would understand how I got to this point. I can never, I can never break this out because everybody would think less of me. And the reason for that is shame thrives in darkness. And for that reason, it will drag you back to darkness again and again and again and again. It'll say, don't bring it to the light. But if you shine a flashlight on shame, it dies instantly. And one of the tools that God has provided us is each other and accountability. And this morning as we go into our reflection time, if, if you're struggling, I'm not judging you. I'm not talking down to you. But I'm inviting you to shine a light on that this morning. To let the shame die. To, to seek freedom in Jesus Christ and in your church. This is an open time. You can pray where you're at. You can pray here. You can come talk to me. But I also prepared for the fact that you may not want to walk up here in front of everybody. So if you're struggling with something this morning and, and you want to shine a light on it, but you just can't do it in front of a whole church full of people, on the bottom of your outline, there's a little tab that will rip off very easily. Take that, fill it out. There's some check marks there. Write down anything you want to write. Fold it up where your name can't be seen and drop it in the offering plate when nobody's looking on the way out. And I, and probably my wife, if you're a female, will be the only people that will ever know that you asked for help in that area. This morning, I'm giving you every opportunity to shine a light on your shame. It's just up for you to take that step. Please stand.